Welcome to the Ray of Hope Church podcast. We believe that hope changes everything, so get ready for an encouraging message from the Word of God. We pray that you would receive wisdom and revelation as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to see you guys. If you're watching by camera, thank you so much for tuning in. It's been a glorious day, amen. We're so glad you guys are here. There's, a, there's 20 CEOs that boarded a plane, and they were wined and dined and all kinds of wonderful gifts lavished upon them. The only catch was in their aircraft, their aircraft was going to be, have to be manned by nothing more than technology. All of them were IT um, CEOs, so they had to use their software to fly the plane with, completely unmanned. Well, here pretty quick, 19 of them found excuses why they didn't need to be on the plane, and they exited. And there was one CEO left, and when they asked him, they said, Sir, why in the world did you stay on the plane? Do you really have that much faith in your technology? He goes, oh, no, I don't have that much faith in my technology. If it's the same software we use in our IT at work, the plane will never even get off the ground. Confidence, right? Either way, we have confidence. Hey, would you guys stand up? Today, that's what we're talking about. Amidst the chaos, we have confidence in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? If you guys would turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you are a guest, we'd like to welcome you and say thank you for so much for being here and being a part of this. We are very excited about Jesus Christ in this place. Amen. Wonderful season amidst all the chaos that's going on around us. Let's not forget what season we're in. Amen. We know that we should be excited about Jesus Christ every day of our life. But the closer we get to Christmas, the more that build up. And we know that because Jesus Christ came as a baby... As a baby in a manger, right, we have salvation, and that is glorious news. Here we, we are uh, flipping through to 1 John chapter 2, 1 through, uh, one through uh, first and second verse there, and let's begin to read. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Well, yet again, good news. Let's bow. Father, we love you. We thank you for your hand in our lives. Visit us today. God, we worship you and we praise you and we just want to lift you up. And everybody says, amen. amen. You may wave at, well, you don't, you don't, you not may. You can wave at somebody as you go down. Welcome them. Maybe if you're listening to us by camera, wave at the person there on the couch beside you, right? That'd be nice. Here, we understand that as Christians, that our confidence is not based on our aptitude. It's not based on position or resources. We understand that our confidence as a Christian lies solely in Jesus Christ. Um, that, that no longer do I have to wage war by myself. Matter of fact, I now know that I'm in a war and I'm aware of that. And it's because Jesus Christ has made my spirit alive. The story of Abraham Lincoln goes that whenever he was shot... And, of course, he passed away. They cleaned out his pockets. And in his pockets, they found a handkerchief, a handkerchief embroidered A. Lincoln. They also found a pair of glasses that were put together by thread. They found a $5 bill, which was unusual because it was Confederate money. And then they found some old newspaper clippings in his pocket. And when they began to read those newspaper clippings, one of them in particular stood out. It talked about how he was one of the greatest men of all time. Now, some people read that story and think, how pathetic a president of the United States needs to build confidence like that. Doesn't he know his position, his, his, where he is, and his power? 
However, I can relate to Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure many of you guys can too that sometimes I need a little bit of confidence from somewhere. Amen. I need a little bit of help. And here Abraham Lincoln was pulling those newspaper clippings out of his pocket, reminding him of what he had done in his past that he could still accomplish that today. I would imagine that with millions and millions of people against you, maybe not thinking you're doing the greatest job, that would not be a very good confidence boost. But he had to fight through it. And there's one thing that I've learned. The, the higher you get in leadership, the more windows there are in your house. Anybody can help me out with that? And eventually your house is all glass, right? <laughs> but uh, Abraham Lincoln was like that. And I can relate to Abraham Lincoln and think, I need some confidence Sometimes I have to remember what God's done in my life. I have to pull back and say, no, he's changed me back there. He can change me today. He saved me back there and pulled me out of a situation. He can pull me out of this situation. He's taken me forward when I didn't think I only had reverse, but I'm still going forward this time. So I can relate to Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure that we all can. And here John is building up his confidence in his readers. He starts by saying that first verse there in chapter 2, my little children. What a wonderful verse. Now, this is, this is Pastor John here. We know he's an apostle. He wrote this letter about 10 years after he wrote the Gospel of John. He's been through many things. Matter of fact, as he's writing John chapter 1, we believe it's in the later years of his life. So he's really coming to that fatherly point, to that grandfatherly point. And he's writing, he says, listen, my dear children. What is he doing? He's building up confidence in us as readers. Really, this book wasn't really particularly written to a church or a congregation. It was more to people who believed. So we fit right in that category. And he goes, listen, I'm going to tell you from a fatherly perspective some things. And then he goes on, he says, that he reassures his church family, he says, these things. I'm going to talk to you about these things. Now, what, what does these things mean? Well, if we read chapter 1, we understand that he talks about how Christ has been here from the beginning. There was some teaching creeping into the church that was saying that Jesus wasn't all that he said that he, was, that he is. That, that you don't have to fully to believe in the nature of who he is. You can kind of sort of believe. And John wanted to correct that. And he said, no, Jesus Christ has been here from the beginning. These new teachings will fade away and die away, but Jesus Christ will stand forever. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what he was teaching his people. He also taught them about this gospel of Jesus Christ, this story and all, man. Could you imagine John telling the story of Jesus? As we read the Gospel of John, if you're in here this morning and you say, man, I just really need to fall in love with Christ all over again. Hey, we've all been there. I would suggest to you read the book of John. If you read the book of John, you fall in love with Jesus all over again. It's like, it's like John is writing the book from his head on the bosom of Christ. You can tell that he's passionately in love. And that's what he's saying here. He says, listen, Christ is the standard. Keep an honest walk before the Lord. And whatever you do, don't fall into self deception we all sin and we need Jesus and he's building the confidence and he says now these things that I've said in chapter one but these things that I'm going to say too know that they're from this follow the perspective this perspective that I love you then he continues on and he says this and you got to love you got to love John as he's building confidence in his readers he says so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin now we know the rest of the story we have the Bible in front of us and we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God right but as he was writing this letter, they wouldn't have had the Bible per se. They would have had many letters kind of circling the church, but maybe not that specific language. And here John in his fatherly lay is saying, in his kind lay, and his, his mannerly lay is saying, listen, I'm not saying that any of you guys sin, but, but if you do. 
It's like whenever you're talking to your 16, 17-year-old kid about dating. I'm not saying you're ever going to be in that situation that's a little bit compromising. But if you do, this is what you do. Anybody out there? I'm not saying it, but... And you see that from John here. You see this fatherly approach, and he's building confidence in the midst of chaos, in the midst of this stuff creeping into the church that is not biblical, that is not sound, that is not from God. Sounds familiar, amen? Sounds familiar. But he goes on, he says, listen, I've got really good news for you, my little children. I'm going to teach you about some things. And then you realize that I know that you might not think you have sin, and if you don't, that's great. But if you do, let me tell you about your advocate. He goes into part D there, and he goes, we have an advocate. And this is John, I love it, an advocate, right? You have a champion. You have an expert on your side they can go into the throne room of God and talk and carry on dialogue with with God amen this is what he's saying it's one uh, one of the definitions was one who pleads on our behalf a pleader it shows our desperation that we needed Jesus Christ we needed somebody to communicate to God we needed the way the truth and the life we were in desperate situations and he goes on and he says listen my little ones I want to tell you this, you have an advocate, you have a champion, you have one who pleads. It shows the posture that John was even taking. I know that he knew that he was a sinner, that it was by God's glorious grace that one day walked up to him and said, I'm going to call you out to be a disciple that changed his life forever. And he sees that. He goes on, and the first thing that I noticed that God, that John is communicating here, that he, that Jesus Christ is a necessary advocate. Why do we have Jesus Christ as an advocate? He is a necessary advocate. Here John writes, we have an advocate with the Father. In that, that, that terminology, we can say that we have to have an advocate with the Father. And he says, listen, through Jesus Christ, we have that. John 14 and 6 confirms that. I love this story, of course, very familiar scripture where Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. What life? What he's talking to is he's talking to a young man named Thomas. Now, Thomas would have been perceived to be in his early teens. Most of the apostles were at that time that Christ was talking to them. Maybe they're they're late teens, somewhere in that area. And Jesus Christ, before he says this, he's talking about three things. I like to categorize this. He's talking about a person, a place, and a palace. And and before he says that, he's talking to Thomas. He says, listen, there is a place that is prepared for you called heaven, and it's going to be great. And, And in that house, there are many, many mansions. There's palaces there, and it's made for you but you get there through me the person you get there through me now we know Thomas goes on to start a ministry in India among millions and millions of God but whenever he looks at Christ Thomas asks the question that I imagine rests on the mind of so many young people especially at that time that sounds great Jesus but 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 how do we know the way and then Jesus looks at him he says let me tell you the way he says I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes into me except through the Father. He's a necessary advocate. But it's not just for sin. Sin's part of the equation. How many of you guys know with sin comes restoration? And sometimes we think, oh, it's just a little sin. Do I really need anything restored? Absolutely, we do. Might not be as big as we think, but we know that little stuff that's unattended grows and grows and grows. We know that if we leave that weed in the garden, pretty soon there's going to be weeds in the garden, not just weed. Not the kind you smoke, but bad weed. 
you know, the weeds that you need to, clarification there, okay, clarification. I'll just leave that one alone. I could keep going with that, but I'm just going to leave it alone. But we know if we leave these things and we don't take care of them, that's where we wind up. And John is saying, listen, let's not do that. He is a necessary advocate for restoration. I, I like here it says in, in Psalms 51 and 12, very famous picture that we have, very famous scene. King David has just sinned with Bathsheba and, and, and all this was probably taken over a, a year period somewhere in that. We can roughly say maybe nine months. And he's repented and Nathan stands before him. And Nathan calls him out, and of course he says, oh, he says, yes, that is me. And in Psalms 51 and 12, David writes this. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now he's talking to Christ here, he says, or talking to God of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. I think David there begins to show his true brokenness, his true humanity. He says, God, I need your help. Restore that joy that I had of salvation. When, when you were my God and, and I was your child and I did what you said and I ran to you and I didn't flee from you in rebellion, but I was in repentance and I knew that you had me. God, restore that joy to my life. And then he goes on and he says, restore that willingness. I don't know about you, but sometimes whenever God brings sin up to me and says, Matt, you've got to fix this. You need to repent. Sometimes I'm not always willing. Sometimes I have a hard time because I've justified why I have that in my life. I've come up with a very, very good reason why that other person deserves that kind of behavior. Maybe I've come up with a really good reason of why I deserve what I'm doing. Why I deserve the way that I'm thinking. Why I can't change. And David here, caught in this horrible situation, says, God, help me with my willingness to be where you want me to be. And we, through Jesus Christ, through that necessary advocate, has a wide open door to the Holy Spirit that it can collide with our spirit and make us willing to do the things that we need to do to change and be restored. Restored on the small things that we don't seem like we need to be, so we won't repeat that and repeat that and repeat that, and on the large things that we know take time. And this is the thing about restoration. Unfortunately, it's not always your fault. It's not always my fault. Sometimes when we need a restoration, there is somebody sinned against us, hurt us in a major way. Now we're trying to figure out how to cope with that, how to deal with that, how to make it through. Because we have a necessary advocate in Jesus Christ and we have an open door to the Holy Spirit and it collides, it can say, God, I am willing to change. Some of those things where you say, it's not my fault. <laughs> I think about this quarantine thing. Some of you guys have spent so much time in quarantine and you're aggravated and you're frustrated. 28 days here, maybe 30 or 40, and you're wondering, what's going on? It's not my fault. It's true deal. When you're locked down that long, you're having to process that and we know how that feels God I'm mad at this other person I'm mad at this situation but God is trying to work us through that and restore us to higher ground we can still have faith in that amen now in Matthew 10 and 32 he says this the ESV version says so everyone who acknowledges me before men I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven let's read this out of the amplified version just for a second here it says therefore the one who confesses and acknowledges me before as Lord and Savior, affirming a state of oneness with me, 
that one I will also confess and acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And that's really what we have to do. We have to acknowledge, acknowledge and confess. Christ, you are the only way. You are the necessary advocate for me. You know how to deal. You know how to talk. You're skilled and I'm not. The truth is this. I'm walking into a courtroom that I don't even belong in because it's a spiritual realm that I don't quite understand and I need somebody on my behalf that knows how to operate fully and extensively in that atmosphere, amen? And we don't just have somebody that walks in with a briefcase and slams it down and says that I'm here. We have a pleader who goes in there and fights for us. He fights for us because he is our necessary advocate. He knows we cannot do it on our own. And we confess and we acknowledge and say, Christ, I need you. I need the repentance. I, I need the restoration. Help me, God. He's a necessary advocate. John continues to write, and he writes, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What is he saying? He says that Jesus Christ is the perfect advocate. He's, he's, he's the weapon that we need to win the war against sin so that we can be restored, so that we can continue to fight there was a woman and a man driving down the road, and they were perfect. They had the perfect marriage. They had the perfect car. Oh, it was the perfect day. There's a little bit of snow on the ground. The roads were clear. It was just perfect. They looked at each other, and they loved on each other and said, you're just the perfect wife. And the husband, or the wife would look back and say, you're just the perfect husband. You know, just one of those relationships that'll make you sick. You know what I mean? They're just perfect, so perfect. They're driving down the road, and they see somebody. I, mean, I take by the laughs. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. We, we, we drive down the road, and they see somebody on the right side, and they say, we've got to pick up this person because we're perfect, and we've got to do the perfect thing. So they pick him up. Sure enough, it's Santa Claus. Santa Claus, yeah, had some trouble, and now needs to ride in a car. So the perfect family picks up Santa Claus, and they want to do the perfect thing. So they say, let's help you deliver toy Santa. Santa was like, that's a wonderful idea. So the perfect couple in their perfect car drives down the perfect day, delivering these perfect toys to the perfect kids. It's just a perfect moment in time. Then the weather begins to change. Roads begin to be icy, rain falls down, and all of a sudden they have a wreck that is tragic. And the only one that survived was the perfect wife. And you ask why? Well, it's simple, because there's no such thing as a perfect man. And there's no such thing as Santa Claus. So the perfect wife. And some say she might have been driving. I don't know. That's what some people say. Some people say she might have been, been driving. But we have a perfect advocate. I'll leave that one alone too. But we have a perfect advocate in Christ Jesus. Now, in the reality, like that story, perfect, 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 that's really how Christ is. Now, our lives are not. Our lives are not. <laughs> we'll be doing good, then bad, then good, then bad, then good, right? Like, today's a great day. Tomorrow, gosh, I wish I had yesterday, you know? But Christ is not like that. He's perfect, perfect, perfect. And a couple of weeks ago, we preached a sermon series about the invisible war. About understanding the enemy within us, the enemy around us, and the enemy coming against us. And we need a perfect advocate to fight that war. In World War II, it's December 16th, 1944. Americans are taking territory and they land in the Ardennes Forest. It's in Belgium. We know it as the Battle of the Bulge, and the reason why it's called the Battle of the Bulge is because the German troops had infiltrated the lines, and the lines were pushed back, and now all of a sudden it was a big bulge where the line was straight. 
Oh, it was cold too. They were in their foxholes, and I think what a wonderful picture that we have of men that were fighting the enemy against them. They were fighting the German troops, and then they had to fight the enemy with inside of them. You know, they're in foxholes, and all kinds of thoughts are going through their minds. They've, they've encountered things that they never want to talk about again. Of course, sickness inside of them, and they have to keep fighting and keep fighting and keep doing it. And then the enemy around them. Can you believe that many times the, the snow was eight inches deep? It was a constant 20 degrees. They didn't have hot food. Matter of fact, whenever they first started that campaign, it happened so quickly that they couldn't even get the clothes to them that they needed. So many of them started in their fall and summer fatigues to fight most of the winter. Now, they identified their enemy and they defeated them. They won that battle. And I was thinking this last week how appreciative I, I was. As the weather changes a little bit around here and it becomes cooler and cooler, I began to do that little bit of research to remind myself to have a heart of thanksgiving that so many people have sacrificed so much to be where we're at. And as I was reading that story, I was thinking, man, what a wonderful point that it's the same thing that we do in a spiritual. We have to identify who we're going against and we have to identify what we're fighting within and we have to identify what's going on around us. We have to confront that sin. Now, there's two ways to confront sin. You confront the sin in your own life, and then you confront the sin in the world or others. Now, I'm walking on thin ice here, so I'm going to be careful. Because I don't want people to give permission to go out there and start confronting everybody you see. <laughs> the first choice is always to allow the Holy Spirit to do it. The Holy Spirit convicts and changes people's lives, not us. He changes my life. So, Father, come into my life. I want to give you free reign, Holy Spirit, to convict me so that I can change the sin and I can become restored. Let me prove my point. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Very famous scripture here. Got an older man writing to a younger man in the faith, his son. Many believe P Timothy's the pastoring at this time, so he's got a lot of influences on the outside. Some people say he's too young. Some people say he may not know what he's talking about. He's got some internal issues, kind of a weak stomach, kind of fear, you know, some different things going on. But Paul writes to him, he says, let me remind you, Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped. And as I was processing that scripture, I was thinking about scripture in our life. And we know that it's God-breathed, it's inspired by God. The first thing that it does is it inspires me. We got good news. We don't have to go to the latest podcast to be inspired. We don't have to go to the latest TV show or get a great, great quote off the internet or pop in a CD or a tape or whatever vehicle we use to listen to. Instead, I can open up the word of God and have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit come into my life. That's what it's saying. Scripture is to inspire us, to inspire us to live that life. And the next he says to teach. We want to teach and engage, reproof, what reproof is saying is that it's about the Holy Spirit coming up with inside of me and saying, Matt, you're not doing what you need to be doing. It's when those moments in your life as a Christian, you thought, man, I don't even approve of myself right now. Can I say congratulations? That means you're listening to the Holy Spirit. And we have those times. God, I don't even know if I agree with my behavior right now. Well, that's God knocking on the door through the Holy Spirit and saying, hey, listen, listen. And finally, fourth, it talks about correction. 
In the Christian church and sometimes in our Christian faith, we move correction up to number one. The first thing we want to do is let's go confront sin. And, and I want to caution you. If you're one of those guys that cannot wait to confront sin, you probably don't need to be doing it. And I would even say you might not be saved. <laughs> if you cannot wait to put somebody, I cannot wait to put them in their place. That is not scriptural. The disciples ran into that after Jesus was rejected from a town. They said, dude, let's rain down fire. Fire bomb it. He said, no, what spirit are you in? I've come that you could have life and have it abundantly. So I would caution you. If you just can't wait, you probably need to keep your mouth shut because you're going to do a lot of damage, right? But we still have to confront it. But corrections, now, even on that list, corrections number four. So what do we have to have? Whenever we confront sin in our own life or somebody else's, the world, you have to have two things, in my opinion. You have to have position and permission. You have to have position and permission. Now, let's talk about confronting sin in our personal life. So through Jesus Christ, through our perfect advocate, he's given us both. John 15 and 4, here comes Pastor John again, writing in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in, in John. John chapter 15, it says, Abide in me and I in you. What does he do? He gives us permission. He says, come to me. Let me live in you and let my principles or, or you come to me and I'll come to you, so to speak, and we'll live together as one and we'll do this thing and do it right. And in those moments where you feel overwhelmed, you can be what you need to be. In those moments where you don't feel like you can say what you need to say or you need to keep your mouth shut and you know you're not very good at it, I'll help you with that. He gives us permission. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17, I love it. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. What did he just give us there? He gave us position. He said, well, you're no longer what you used to be. You have moved to a different position in, in, in the realm of life, if you will. You've moved to where you couldn't do it, and now you can. You've moved from the old to the new. You were the last, and now you're the first. You were the bottom, and now you're the top. You were the tail, and now you are the head. Because behold, all things are new. He gives us position. So whenever we confront that sin in our own lives, we become physically and mentally and emotionally tired sometimes. We can remind ourselves and say, no, <laughs> The sin doesn't have to win. My faults and failures do not have to define me. What defines me is the permission that Christ has given me. And he said, I can come to him. Matter of fact, he said, I can live with him and abide with him. You know what? That old me, that old Matt that was sometimes nasty, that said things he didn't need to say, I don't have to be that person anymore. Matter of fact, that doesn't have to define who I am because God has given me a new position. He said, Matt, I believe that you're the new creation you're a new creation in me now we see this in confronting other people's sin we have to have permission and we have to have position here let's just start with whenever we can front other people's sin we'll start here with john like what he was doing we'll use him as an example first of all he says my dear little one so that lets us know immediately that he had some sort of permission he was coming to them as a father in the faith so they responded to him then he went on and he said, not only my dear little ones, but he goes on and he begins to correct them very lightly, just a little bit at a time. Now, he had position because he was apostle. 
He was the guy that people would will into a room and the entire room, thousands of people would go silent and hang on every word that he said. But yet, if we go back, he was building confidence in his readers. He's saying, listen, if you don't think you have sin, but if you do, what was he doing? He still wasn't being ill-mannered or rude. He had the position, he had the authority, and he certainly had the permission. But he said, I'm still gonna do it this way. Sometimes whenever we bark orders without permission and we want to go in and change people's lives and and pull them out of their sin, hey, that's the wrong attitude because nobody can do that except for Jesus Christ. But we become, you guys remember Charlie Brown, right? The teacher, wah, wah, wah. That's really what we become without permission. I know when I was a teenager and stuff, if people wanted to yell at me, I'd tune them out. I still do that at 37. You want to act all crazy? You can go act all crazy in the corner. I'm not listening to you. Because they didn't have permission to speak into my life. And sometimes we don't have position. Today in our society, I love the accountability partner concept. (laughs) What we run into, though, is we have an accountability partner. So it's somebody who's going to keep you accountable with your walk with Christ. The only problem with that is we usually, you know, tend to get somebody our own age struggling with the same problems that we have. So then whenever we get together, all it really is is friends sharing their problems. It's no accountability. Because we don't go to somebody with that position, somebody that can truly hold accountability to us. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a friend like that, but I worry when somebody says, oh, I've got accountability partners. They struggle with everything that I struggle with. They're my same age, and they tell me exactly what I want to hear. Uh, that's not very good. <laughs> that's really not an accountability partner. I know in my life, I have about three or four gentlemen that sow into my life. And I go to them and I ask them questions. What I said, was it biblical or was it not? What do you think? What could have been done better? What could have been done worse? Many times when I have a sermon idea, I'll go in and speak to a couple of these gentlemen and say, what do you think? And some of the conversations go really well. Like, man, great job. You know, that's that's biblical. Good job, man. You you run with that idea. Other times, not so much. Other times they're like, uh, and they do like, I think you could be a little bit more biblical than that. It's kind of opinionated, not really, you know, in the Bible as much as you need to be. Sometimes I go in there and they're like, man, you're arguing over stuff that is not a heaven or hell issue. All you're doing is confusing people. And that's a bad thing because we're not here to confuse. We're here to guide and direct. But we have those people in our lives, and I know that all you do too, people you sit down with really and say, how's this really going? And God can work that out. If we go back to 2 Samuel 12 and 13, course here is David he has sinned with Bathsheba they've had a baby Uh, Uriah has been killed and he's called to the carpet on it and I love this whole scene because you see position and permission he's going before the prophet which we know prophets were respected so he already had the position Nathan had the position people honored him knew what he did was true in fact After reading the text, we can tell that he already knew what David did before David knew that he knew. Because God had spoke to him. Can you imagine how much God trusted Nathan to give him that word and then count on him delivering it whenever the Lord told him to, not when he wanted to? It shows about his position. And we know that he had permission from the Lord. But whenever he gets in a dialogue with David, he begins to tell him the story. He begins to tell him about how there was this really, really rich, wealthy guy that had a many, many livestock. But that wasn't good enough for him. 
he, he had to go get this, this one livestock. It was the most precious thing that this poor man owned. And he took that livestock away and took it as his own. And what did David say? Well, let's take care of that guy. Let's go handle it. And Nathan looked at him and said, it is you. What happened? Through the Spirit of God, he got David's permission to talk to him and confront him with his sin. And from that story, I learned that we have people in our heart. We have friends, we have family members that we know maybe live a sinful life. And we wonder how in the world are we going to reach them. I'm living the life, but God, I feel like if I would say this or I could inspire them through this or whatever. And if we will hold back in prayer and let the Lord speak to us, just like he did with David, God is way smarter than we are, and he will find a way for that door to be opened where they give you permission to speak into their life. I was talking to one young lady about homosexuality and how it's not biblical. It was way back years ago. She was really struggling with the concept. In a yogurt shop, I was there with a friend. I took a friend with me. It wasn't just us two talking. In a yogurt shop over yogurt, I took out the Bible, and I began to show her scripture chapter and verse and by the end of that conversation she looked at me and she said I see it now I had the position as her youth pastor but I needed her permission and because I didn't go in there guns a blazing and relied the spirit to open up the door she gave me permission and by the end of it her attitude and her outlook had changed now I've gone in there guns a blazing before and let me tell you it doesn't work People build up a defense immediately and shut down. It's not going to work. John continues to write here. He doesn't want anybody to have any defenses. He says, listen, he is the propitiation of our sin, and not for yours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is he saying? He's saying the last thing here. We have a qualified advocate. We have a qualified advocate. 1972, NASA launches a satellite into orbit. And its task is to go to Jupiter, take pictures and transmit them back to, 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 to NASA. Well, they shoot this thing into orbit, and 25 years later, it's still shooting pictures back. It's four to six billion miles away from the sun. This is the kicker. It's all done by an 8-watt transmitter radio. The nightlight that we turn on in our rooms, that's about what powers this thing. But you take an 8-watt radio and you put it in the hands of scientists who know what to do. You put it in the hands of qualified people who can build these machines and it will do things that will blow your mind even 25 years later. And because we have a qualified advocate that we turn on, turn to, we know in our life, 10 years, 15 years, 25 years from now, we're still making a difference. People around you might understand what's going on. They might have known you as the old you, and they can't understand exactly, maybe not even believe. I cannot believe this is happening. But when we're in the hands of a qualified advocate, we have what we need to succeed. And that's what John is saying here. He's saying, listen, he was enough for our sins. As we run into the season that we're in, we're going to celebrate the birth, obviously, of Jesus. Today, I just want to take a couple minutes and think about what he endured on the cross. 
in Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it talks about, speaks about whenever something is stolen, whenever something's been spoken of falsely. And, and the law is that you had to do, you had to replace it at its full value plus 20% then I think about our Lord and Savior in Matthew 5, 17, where he's talking to the Pharisees and he goes, do you suppose that I came to do away with the law of the prophets? I came that it might be fulfilled. In other words, my life is the living example of the law of the prophets. And in Viticus, whenever they lay down that law, and these men would have known it so well, I think about now what our Savior has endured. So when I hear scriptures like Matthew 7 and 14, for narrow is the gate. I think about the meaning for me that I understand that that means Christ and Christ alone. But I also now look at it from him thinking, there is but one way that I become the advocate. And it's my life laying down on the cross. Then we go on to read Matthew 5, where if they slap you on one cheek, go ahead and give them the other. If they off, want your tunic, give them your cloak. If they ask you one mile, go ahead and walk two miles. And in chapter 1 of 1 John, John is saying, listen, there is no deceit. There is no darkness in Jesus Christ. He has to fulfill the letter of the law. And I look at that and I think, now when I talk about his beating. His beating was so severe because he couldn't just be beat like normal. It was the extra. Whenever he would offer his cloak and he said to do that, remember them casting lots for his clothes at the foot of the cross. Whenever you go one mile, let's go ahead and go two. So it's not enough that I'm going to be crucified on the cross and be beaten, now I'm going to carry it too. Because he is our qualified advocate. So now I read things like John 10, 10, and here we see John writing again, life and life abundant, but the way that I receive life and life abundant, the way that we get to walk in it is because Christ's death was past what I could imagine or think. Ephesians 3, 20, exceedingly abundantly above all I could ask or think, according all men, that's so great that I'm living on this side of it. But I think of the whippings and the beatings, humiliation, and it wasn't normal. It was past that. It was horrendous. It was horrific, un unrecognizable. But because he was willing to do that, I'm willing to stand. I can stand on this side and say I can have life and have it abundantly. One guy put it like this, death plus 20%. And here we get to stand and know the debt was fully paid with excess. And then John goes on, and I love Pastor John here. He goes on through scriptures. We see God's heart all over again. And who was this all for? It was for our sins. He says, listen, you guys that are saved and love Jesus and invited him into your heart, it's for your sins. But he goes on and he says, also the world's sins. I think about John here as he writes that final point, also the world's sins. You know what scripture comes to mind for me? One of the most famous ones we quote, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It doesn't change. If we read John 10 years apart, it doesn't change. The narrative is still about having an advocate that we can call Jesus Christ. Amen.
And in this time of chaos that we live in, we think, how in the world are we going to make it? How in the world am I going to do it? Can I say we're not going to make it and I can't do it? But through Jesus Christ, we can and I will. Amen. But it's that confidence during that chaos. Would you bow with me? We are so thankful you joined us today. We would love to hear from you at rayofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you are encouraged and how we can pray for you. Remember, Christ in you is the hope of glory and hope changes everything.